Matthew 7, starting at verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Um, I thank you so much for this sermon that you preached 2,000 years ago as you told us what it meant to be a follower of yours, what um, living out the gospel of, this, uh, of the kingdom of God would look like in our lives. And so thank you for that, Lord. I pray this morning that as we study your word, Lord, that the words that I say, that you would come and break me of the places I fall short before you break anyone. Lord, I, I want desperately to live for you um, with everything that's in me. I want everything that's inside of me to pursue you as deeply as I should. So forgive me, Lord, for where I, where I don't. And I pray that the words I speak would penetrate down deep in my heart, that you would stir up deep affections for Jesus. And I pray that for all my friends here, that you would stir up deep affections for Jesus um, as, we, as we look at your word. We know that... Um, we know that your word um, has power behind it. And so help me keep that in mind as I preach this morning. That I don't have to um, try to change it or make it greater than it already is. I don't have to act different or put on a personality that would be engaging. That I can come humbly and Lord keep me from pride and just... Teach your word as you have it and trust you that you would use it. And so, Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for all my friends here that we would submit ourselves under the authority of the word and the things that we hear from the Spirit this morning, um, that we would not just be hearers, but, but doers of the word, that you would change us um, as we examine your text this morning. We thank you so much, Lord, for this time um, as we worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, chapter 6, chapter 6 in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was telling us, and this is, we're continuing here in 7, just kind of the big idea of this is that we're looking at what is called essential eternal, eternal perspectives on kingdom living. You can see the little title here, essential eternal perspectives on, on kingdom living. So Christ has been, has been going here in the beginning of his ministry, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And as he's doing, as he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's telling them some essential things that they need to have that are, that are going to shape their mind eternally. And as we, as we saw that in the very beginning of 6, he talked about prayer and fasting and giving and what that looked like. And then from there, he transitioned into the second half of the chapter, where really he talks about money and anxiety. He talks about money and anxiety. So... Um, after he's kind of talked about these things that we that should shape the way we live, what it looks like to, to be a person who gives, all these kinds of things, now we're moving into um, interpersonal relationships. So the first here in chapter 6 is kind of we're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about, do I have this? Do I have that? How do I do this? How do I do that? Those kinds of things. And now, chapter 7, there's a little bit of a transition, um, and he's going to start talking about how we interact with other people, how we interact with other people. And you, I know that you've heard verse 1. It's one of the most misquoted texts in the Bible and usually probably one of the most misunderstood um, texts. And usually it's in the context of if you're watching Larry King or any kind of, any kind of show about anything, they, they pair off three people that um, are, are kind of like-minded in one. Then you've got the, the one conservative or Christian voice and they keep quiet for a while and they talk about a certain thing and all of a sudden they finally ask this person what they think just so they can demean them and then they finally say this is what I think according to scripture and then they throw out Matthew 7 1 judge not how can you say that and so usually um, it's it's in the context usually whenever someone says how can you judge uh, on, on this kind of thing it's usually in the context if someone that's a Christian is, is making any kind of moral decision based on um, sexuality or any of these kinds of topics. It's usually where they throw out uh, verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Um, and this verse right here, chapter 7, verse 1, um, is not saying that Christians are never allowed to say that something's not right. Um, though sometimes it's thought of that. James Boyce says, in our postmodern environment, the only acknowledged evil is claiming that someone else is mistaken. Um, so, and usually this verse is kind of thrown out t- towards them, uh, that how can you make some kind of moral pronouncement on things that are wrong or right? You're not supposed to judge. Um, but as we get into this, we're going to really look at what's the, what's the real context. Not, not only that, but what is actually being said in the words judge not. Um, what's, Jesus trying, what's the point Jesus is trying to make and what's the context of it all? Um, so now we're moving in after... Uh, how the gospel affects, affects our lives into moving of how it, how it moves into other people. And, and really the transition here in, in chapter 6 when he's talking about uh, money and anxiety, he's dealing with people that are pretty much um, apathetic towards their life. If they, if, they, if, they don't, if they have money and they don't want to give it or if they're kind of anxious and they're, they're, they're apathetic in their life, uh, now he's going to move to those people who might be fanatics, who are crazy when it comes to comes to things, and they're really just wanting to go crazy on people. So the, we all maybe have some of those kind of fanatics in our lives that we've, that we've interacted with. Hopefully none of the people here are fanatics. But let's go ahead and um, let's look at these three. There's going to be three things that we're going to look at in, verse, in verses 1 through 11. And the, the overall kind of uh, theme or, or what we're looking at is, is three last advisory cautions for kingdom living. So Jesus is going to, and as he's concluding the, the body of the sermon, and we're going to get to the conclusion uh, starting at verse 13, where he just kind of starts 
pounding home the conclusion and, and giving us two examples. It's two examples. Are you this or this? Are you this or this? Um, but we're going to get to that soon. Today is verses 1 through 11, and he's kind of given three last advisory cautions for kingdom living, and you're going to be able to see those um, here. But before we do that, let's go ahead and look at the first, the first little section. The first caution is going to come from verses 1 through 5. Um, So let's look at verses 1 through 5. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, Jesus is not forbidding um, calling someone guilty before God. Um, He is not... D.A. Carson says, Jesus does not forbid all judging of any kind, for the moral distinctions drawn in the Sermon on the Mount require that decisive judgments be made. So... He's not saying that you're not ever allowed to say anything about whether something's morally right or wrong. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, Jesus is clearly making some kind of moral judgment about someone because he's calling them a dog or a pig. And so he's, he's saying that in a pejorative sense. And so if Jesus is going to call them a dog or a pig, he's made some kind of judgment that makes him think they are a dog or a pig. So you can see here that it's, it's insane to say you're not ever supposed to hold any kind of opinion on what's right or wrong. Um, it, it's not saying that. But instead, if you look at this judge not... Um, the way that this word judge can be kind of understood is that it's talking about uh, not adopting a critical spirit or a condemning attitude towards someone. So now we can kind of see where we're going um, in here. Look what it says for now. The, the word for means that he's going to start making an argument. He's going to explain to us why we should not be adopting some kind of critical attitude or condemning spirit towards someone for now. This is pretty it's pretty weighty. This is a really good reason not to be critical towards people. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So if you are a very harsh, critical person against people, that same criticism, that same harshness will come back to you. Now the question is, from whom? From people or God? And most of the commentators I read and I agree with is, is saying that it's coming from God. So that's worse. So we don't want to be the kind of people that are harshly condemning people um, because that same idea will come back to us. Uh, instead, let's look at, let's look at two, two... Well, no, we'll, we'll keep going. We, I, we kind of struggle for our time here, so let me keep going. Um, so we have that, that, that reason why in verse 2, for the judgment. And then Jesus is going to, to launch into us with this ridiculous example, a hyperbole um, of, of what it really looks like if we're that kind of person. If we're that kind of person, we were so harshly condemning towards people, and yet we don't necessarily think about ourselves. Look what it says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Why do you see the speck that is in your in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, "Let me take the speck out of your own eye" when there is a log in your own in your own? Um, James, uh, I'm sorry, D. A. Carson says that the situation depicted by this brief scenario, where you're talking about the speck and the log, he says, occurs so frequently and so pathetically in professing Christian circles that the contrast between the speck of sawdust and the planker log is not at all exaggerated. So it's actually pretty common in Christian circles, is what he's saying, that we see this. Um, now, it's just a little bit ridiculous to think 
that this actually happens. And so I thought it would be helpful for us. I saw this once, um, someone do this. And so he says, basically, this is what Jesus is saying. Someone has a speck. And so here's the, here's the uh, hypocrite, if you will, who has this, this log, and he's just kind of stuck right here into his eye. And he looks over at his, at, his, at his person who has this little piece of sawdust in their eye, and he's like, oh my, are you kidding me? Look at that thing in your eye. I mean, that's embarrassing. How can you walk around with that thing sticking, that little thing in your eye? That's just embarrassing. I can't believe you even walk around like that. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, can you see the irony that you have a massive two-by-four sticking out of your face and you're looking at this tiny speck in someone's eye and you're like, that's just embarrassing and you call yourself a Christian. I mean, how can you even think that way? That's just ridiculous. Like, you can see the ridiculous nature of that kind of thing. Um, I think this is pretty good because James Boyce says this, and be careful that you do not become like the hypocrite who bustles up at another person and says, oh, you poor Christian, you have a speck of soot in your eye, but he does not see the thing that everyone else can see and which is so obvious that he has a steel girder protruding from his own face. Um, So you can see where the nature of verses 1 through 5 is not so much judging. It's not so much judging. Instead, verse 5 says, you hypocrite. So the warning here or the caution here that Jesus is giving, which is the first one here, the last advisory caution for kingdom living is kingdom living is the gospel of the kingdom does not produce people that are judgmental hypocrites, judgmental hypocrites. Now, that means that the gospel of the kingdom will produce people who understand how to make moral pronouncements on things that are right or wrong. It will produce that. Um, the gospel of the kingdom, <laughs> there are people that aren't believers that, that like to do that. But the gospel of the kingdom um, does not produce people that are judgmental hypocrites. Um, in other words, they're not the kind of people that are harshly critical. They have a judgmental attitude towards some people that um, they are incapable or unable unable to look at their, their own lives and see that they have massive steel protrude, girders protruding from their face. That's the kind of the point that we're... So there's some themes here in this little um, hyperbole or example that Jesus uses in chapter... I'm sorry, in verses 3 and 4, which is hypocrisy, blindness... They, they desire power over others. They, they really lack love over others. And they have a harsh attitude. They have a harsh attitude towards other people. Um, for, Sinclair Ferguson says, What's wrong with such a man? He is looking for sins in other people and he pounces whenever he sees one. So absorbed is he in his campaign that he is blind to the fact that he has sin in his own life that is far greater than anything he sees in the lives of others. He's guilty of what he calls the sin of censoriousness. Censoriousness basically is severely critical fault-finding, fussy, petty criticism. It's judging the minor faults of other people without acknowledging and correcting your own huge, major faults. Censoriousness is what it is. Um, And being censorious... Has, has conquered this particular man so bad, he's such a judgmental hypocrite that he's completely blind to that. And this is, this is not what's supposed to be marked in the life of a Christian. Not supposed to be marked in the life of a Christian. 
Um, Carson even goes on to say, not just in regard to sin protruding from their face, but also you've got the doctrinal critic as well. Um, the doctrinal critic may agree that another person is a brother in Christ and has been used of the Lord and may be thoughtful and sincere in his submission to Scripture, but because the critic focuses on the one area of doctrine in which the two disagree, this brother um, may be painted in public hues of gray and black that the Christians are to demonstrate observable love is lost to the view of this critic while he, quote, defends the truth. Um, so we also have the doctrinal critic as well, which is, again, not carrying on the spirit of what Jesus is trying to teach us in verses 1 through 5, that Christians are not to be, Christians are not to be judgmental hypocrites. Instead, instead, um, we're supposed to be like, whenever we see, so let's, let's be clear here. Um, Matthew in, in, in chapter 18 verses 15 through 20 is going to give us an example in the church whenever there's uh, sin in, in the church, whenever there's sin in someone's life. In order to, to see sin in someone's life, you have to ma- have made um, a, a moral judgment that they are doing something right or wrong. Because in, in chapter 18 um, verses 15 through 20, let me just kind of read the first verse to you here. It says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. In order for you to be able to go to someone and say, you've sinned against me, you have to have made some kind of moral judgment that what they did was sin. So, I mean, I don't think we need to go into any more to try to say that you're not ever supposed to look at someone's life and say whether they're sinful or not. The idea is the attitude behind it. The idea is that you're not a judgmental hypocrite. Um, and even in the text that Jesus gives us in, in verses 3 and 4, he says, you, you hypocrite, in verse 5, first take the log out of your own eye. So he tells you to remove this huge you know, two by four from your face. And then after you do that, it doesn't say, and then you're good. He actually says, then after you do that, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's still not barring going to your brother who has maybe a smaller sin in their life. So clearly, we are supposed to go to those. Now, don't miss the word brother. Don't miss the word brother. Um, and I think that we all can maybe just use some wisdom here that we're talking about those who are Christian brothers and sisters in our life. Don't go and, and expect non-Christians, people that don't follow Jesus, people who don't love Jesus, to conform to Christian morality. Don't get angry at them for living like an unbeliever. What would you expect? Instead, those are the ones that we want to show more compassion, more love to, more mercy to. But those that are brothers... We remove the massive plank from our face and then we do go to them and we talk to them about the speck in our own in our in our in their in their eye. Just like Matthew 18 says, if someone who sinned against you, go and tell them their faults. And this and I want to read Galatians six to you, the uh, the way, the attitude that by which we should go to people. This is what Paul says in Matthew six. I'm sorry, Galatians six. Um, this is how he says, brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that's key because the spiritual person has (laughs) recognized that they have sin in their life, that they need to work on themselves. And it says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So 
those in these last cautions were saying uh, Christians are not going to the gospel of the kingdom does not produce people who are judgmental hypocrites. Um, instead, it produces the kind of people that want to go to someone and restore people in a spirit of gentleness that they've repented of their own sin. They've looked at their own life. They've reflected of the sin in their own life. They've repented and they're going to go humbly to the person and they're going to even maybe acknowledge. I know that I've got sin in my life, but I love you deeply. You are someone who I care about. I'm going to bring the scripture to me. I prayed for you and I'm going to say, according to the scriptures, I may see this in your life. My goal is Matthew 18, that you would not have this sin in your life, but instead, um, Repent and be reconciled to God. And there's a way in which we do it. And it says, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted as well. Fully aware that as you go to someone and they're dealing with a sin, that you're not going to engage in it in such a way that you're going to just start engaging in the sin with them. There's a completely difference. There's a big difference by being the person that just wants to bash everybody because of the sin in their life as they have a big, huge sin kind of protruding that everybody sees except for them or repenting of that and going to a person that you see sin in your, their life and you love them deeply. You're not a judgmental hypocrite. Instead, you are someone that loves someone deeply that you would want to go and point out sin to them. Now, Jesus rebukes here in, in, in five, you hypocrite. And this rebuke is reserved for the one who is breaking the command of, of seven one. Judge not lest you be judged. They are breaking that command. And the worst of these offenders, the worst of these offenders who are judgmental hypocrites um, will never be satisfied. Whenever you point it out, the big, huge two by four sticking out of their face, they don't want to hear it. Instead, they want to hunt around in your eye for another speck. Because that's the only way they'll feel good about themselves is that they can denounce and that they can condemn. And we don't want to be those kinds of people. And so as I was studying through this text this week, um, seeing that the point here is not judging, but the point here is hypocrisy. And the question that I need to be asking myself is, how am I doing and the point that you should be asking yourself is, how are you doing in regard to this? Are you going to people to tear them down whenever you see sin in their life? Or are you going to people to build them up? To tear them down is sin and hypocrisy. To build them up is Christ-exalting and gospel-centered. And so whenever we see that in our lives, which one do we want to be? Do we want to be um, sinful hypocrites or do we want to be Christ-exalting and do we want to be gospel-centered in the way we do it? Realizing gospel-centered meaning <laughs> God has forgiven me, the chief of sinners. Therefore, I want to go to people just as humbly as I can, willing to point out sin in their life because I love them. And you're doing this to your brothers that you know well. So as I was looking at this in my own life, I realized that I am self-condemned here, that I am just exactly this person, and that if you are seeing that, that maybe we would all pray for grace from the Lord, that we wouldn't be these kinds of people that are self-condemning, uh, I'm sorry, that are, that are judgmental hypocrites, but instead we would want to be the kind of people that as we go to people, that we're not trying to condemn them and make them feel even worse, but we're trying to lift them up and help them come out of sin. So the first caution here is that we would not be judgmental hypocrites, but the opposite of that is, is that those that are going to encourage people, gospel-centered, to, to rise up out of the things that are going on in their life. That's the first one. Now, this next verse, um, 
we're transitioning to something different. Calvin says, as, as, we're, as we move from five to six, where he says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. Calvin says that this verse six is entirely separate. It is not at all connected in any way to verses one through five. Um, which, in some ways, he's right. But also, in some ways, um, it is somewhat connected, just that it's still talking about dealing with other people. Um, verses 1 through 5 is talking about how you deal with brothers and, and the things that are going on in their life that you don't want to be judgmental. And now, verses 6 is talking about how you deal with people that are not Christians. So he's moved on to this. Now, this is, this is a strange little verse. In seminary, um, they threw out this little word uh, for, for people that are... <clears throat> I don't know, these are all maybe new terms for you, but there's, there's people that are called Calvinists. And basically, um, a Calvinist or someone who's Reformed believes that um, from, basically Ephesians 1.5, from, from eternity past, God has predestined those who would be saved. Um, and so the idea, which is biblical, I mean, predestination is not a, verse, a, a word that's not in the Bible, but there's these people that are called hyper-Calvinists, which basically just means since God has predestined the elect from eternity past, um, what we're supposed to do is not share the gospel ever with the non-elect. So before I share the gospel with someone that's not a Christian, I'm going to look for signs. I'm going to wait for them to show evidences that they're elect, that they are going to be someone who's actually going to put their faith in Jesus as if there's some kind of like <laughs> the Holy Spirit themselves and they can determine that. And so they wait for those things and that's whenever they're actually going to share the gospel with someone. It's insane to share the gospel with someone who's not elect. You're just wasting your words. That's kind of the, the foolish nature of this. And I think these crazy hyper-Calvinists um, really must love Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 because this is what it says. And the, you can just kind of see what I'm talking about now, because when we talk about what's holy and what's pearls, we're talking about the words of salvation. And this says, do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So where that's been taken is what's holy, what's pearls um, is the words of salvation. And those people who are dogs, those people who are pigs, you don't throw the words of salvation for them to them because all they're going to do is just take it and trample it underfoot and they're going to turn and they're going to attack you. And so you don't ever share the gospel with people that aren't, that, that aren't showing signs of the elect. Now, I think that's insane. Um, I think that's insane. I'm going to try to explain to you what I think is actually happening here um, because it's not saying that we've got some kind of like secret thing in our mind where we can figure out whether people are actually going to put their faith in Jesus and those are the people. As a matter of fact, the Bible clearly tells us that we proclaim the gospel to everyone. We don't know their heart. We don't know who they are. We don't know whether they're going to put their faith in Jesus or not. Instead, we pour out our lives to those who don't know Jesus in order that they, they might come to Christ. All right, so let, let's explain what this means. Um, pigs and dogs, um, as we're looking at this... Uh, commentator said that as as we look at pigs they're talking about people who are brutally stupid and as we're looking at people who are dogs we're looking at people who have just uncontrollable rage and certainly experience has shown us that we have dealt with two kinds of such uh despisers of god the brutally stupid and the, and the crazy um people who are rage and we're going to see that jesus now in verse six is prepping us for the conclusion in verse 13 for when he starts saying, it's either this way or this way. It's either this way or this way. Which one are you? We're going to start seeing the ones that are the dogs and pigs. And 
then we're also going to start seeing the kinds of the people that live in the gospel of the kingdom. So uh, as we talked about the pearls, um, which means great value. Um, and what we can see here is this. I just want you to, this is kind of a little side note with this. We're getting to the main point of it. But if it's telling you, you have what is holy, that means you have something that's extremely valuable. You have something holy. You have, if you're a believer, the words of salvation in order to share. And actually it says, it compares it to pearls. It's saying that you are wealthy. You are very wealthy. And you have something that is extremely um, valuable in your life, that you have the words of salvation. Just to kind of show you, you may not feel like you're rich, you may not feel like you have much, but those who are in Christ, who have the words of salvation, who know the gospel, who believe the gospel, and can share the gospel, are wealthy in Christ. Very wealthy. As a matter of fact, you own pearls, which is, you know, Jesus is using that as, a, as something that to show that it's very valuable. Um, also, the key word here for us then is trample, lest they trample them underfoot. So we're talking about dogs and pigs. Dogs were not, you know, these, these cute little things back then that kind of hopped up in your lap and you, and you pet and, you know, we, they took them and got them trimmed and they shampooed their hair every day and blah, blah, blah. They bought them sweaters. Um, anyway, so the dogs back then were crazy. They, they ran around and they, they hunted everything and they tore things apart. If your dog has a sweater, I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, so the idea here is talking about these kinds of animals the, that, are, that are just insane. They're, they're, they're stupid and they're, they have rage. They, they hate, they trample this thing. They can't stand what's going on. So here's the second thing. Um, the, the, the second caution for us here in this text is this. The gospel of the kingdom does produce discerning people, does produce discerning people who are not indiscriminately feeding dogs and pigs. We are, as Christians, given a short amount of life. We only have 70 or 80 years to share the gospel with people. Alright? You are called as a Christian to share the gospel with every single person. I mean, Matthew 5.44 says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, we are not trying to negate the fact at all that you're supposed to love your enemies. Um, Jesus is not forbidding us to tell wretchedly depraved sinners the gospel because that's who we are as well and someone shared the gospel with us. Mark 16, 15 says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. The whole creation. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so we, we understand here that there is a clear word to us as Christians to share the gospel with everyone we come into contact with so that they can um, come to Christ. However, verse 6 is saying this, and it's, it's interesting that it's saying, but it is saying that we're not, the gospel of the kingdom is not producing kind of people who are indiscriminately feeding dogs and pigs. Um, they are so, dogs and pigs are so thoroughly Calvin says, so thoroughly imbued or permeated. It's just every essence of their being. Dogs and pigs are so thoroughly permeated with wicked contempt of God that they refuse to accept any remedy. They refuse to accept any remedy. They have a thorough, deep, wicked hatred, contempt of God. They will trample your words continually. They're dogs and pigs. And what he's saying here is this. We are not to indiscriminately 
for our entire lives continually feed dogs and pigs because you have a short amount of time to share the gospel. You could be, if you're, doing, if you're wanting to find yourself dealing with people that are so wickedly contemptuous of God, you could be wasting your time for people that really can and need to hear the gospel. Now, let me say this, okay? Because you're like, what? Are you crazy? Listen, my dad's uh, 69 years old now. Um, I shared the gospel with him for a long time. He met Jesus at 66. So I'm not saying that after two years, if they're wickedly contempt, you just give up. I led my dad to Jesus about three years ago and baptized him at 66. So clearly I'm for being someone who's going to persevere and share in the gospel with someone to a very old age. But there was never a sign in my dad's life that he was wickedly contempt of God. He just couldn't get his mind around the gospel. He could not get his mind around acting out and doing things to try to attain righteousness. He, he thought righteousness came from works. And so we're talking about two different people here. Not people who, we're not saying, I'm not saying quit sharing the gospel with people that, thinks, that think acting, uh, becoming a Christian is works righteousness. You keep sharing the gospel with them all the time. But those who are wickedly contempt, you can just see there's kind of two things of non-believers. Those who just don't have an understanding and those who have a deep hatred, contempt of God. We share the gospel with them. Absolutely. But at a point, we're going to have to say, I'm going to move over to these because I'm going to have and see more fruit here. That's, that's the only thing we can get out of verse 6. And I'm not saying verse 6 is an easy verse for us to understand. But let me just kind of throw this out real practically for us as, before we move on to the next one. Um, is this. I don't know, I don't know that any of us will meet someone in verse 6 in our lifetime, but maybe once. I don't know. I, I just don't know. I, I still have never met someone that seems to me that they are so wickedly contempt of the things of God that I should stop sharing the gospel with them. So I wouldn't say <laughs> for all of us that we should just jump over to Matthew 7, 6 and, in order to stop sharing the gospel and say, oh, you're a dog, you're a pig, I can move on. Jesus is fine with me for moving on away from you. I'm not sure that any of us but, might meet one of these people, but maybe once in our life. I would say, clearly, we want to keep sharing the gospel with them, but discerning. We wouldn't just indiscriminately in our entire life keep feeding a dog or a pig for them to just keep trampling it underfoot and turn and attack you. Um, so, that's the first two. The first one is that we wouldn't be judgmental hypocrites. The second one is that we're just not going to indiscriminately, basically, feed dogs and pigs, waste our life. Um, now, we've, we've transitioned. Um, this is pretty amazing. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said that now that we're transferring, or transitioning from verses 1 through 6, we're kind of highlighting this judgmental nature of God. We're moving over into 7 to 11, where we're seeing that God now is our Father. Jesus is wanting to instead take away this idea that Jesus, that God is the judge, like in verses 1 through 5, and now he's wanting to highlight this nature of God as a loving, compassionate Father who loves you more than you can ever ask or imagine. So this is where we're moving over as we see verses 7 through 11 here. And this is what it says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open all right so this is jesus talking to those who are christians and this is what he tells us ask seek and knock so um, let me just go ahead and tell you the third one this is the third um, kind of person that is produced from the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom does produce 
sons and daughters, and I'm putting the word sons and daughters in here because, uh, as I've said, the fatherhood of God is being highlighted in these verses. And so just to you remember, you're a son, you're a daughter of God, and he wants you to think of yourself as that. Um, and if you had you know, a, a, an earthly father that wasn't great, the heavenly father is completely other than him. He is far, uh, far more benevolent. He is, he's infinitely good. And so this is the father we have. Um, is, he's highlighting this for us, and he's telling us that um, the gospel of the kingdom does produce sons and daughters that pursue God relentlessly. And I'm using the word pursue because it's saying ask, seek, and knock. Um, ask, seek, and knock. Um, in other words, verses 7 through 11 are telling us that the gospel of the kingdom is going to produce the kind of believers that are going to persevere. They're going to, pers- they're going to persist in their faith. It's not going to produce people who are lazy children, who are passionate-less, uh, that they're affectionate-less about Jesus. But instead, it's going to produce the kind of people that are, that are going to persevere. They're going to keep persisting. Um, and he's using these words, and I'm using this word that pursue God relentlessly, because it, right there in verse 7, he's going to throw out three quick imperatives that are commands that you're to do. You're going to ask, you're going to seek, you're going to knock. So as we're going into this last little thing, and what I want you to hear, ask yourself is this, what kind of son or daughter am I? What kind of son or daughter am I? Because as we read this, you're going to think that this is really just talking about prayer. Um, and so... While it is talking about prayer, I think that it's a little bit more broad than just prayer itself. This is kind of covering, um, while prayer is an aspect of our, of our deep, passionate pursuit of God, our relationship with Him, prayer is a part of it, but we're also seeking Him. We're wanting to become like Him. We're wanting to confess our sin. So this is kind of the big, broad category of what your pursuit of God or of Christ looks like. Um, and so the caution here is, as he's talking about, ask, seek, knock, what I want us to think is this. What kind of son or daughter are you? He's highlighting the son and daughter relationship with the father. What kind of son and daughter are you? Are you the kind that's not interactive with the father? Are you the kind that's not engaged? Are you the kind that's not requesting? He's telling us here, request, ask, come and ask me. Are you the kind that's not acting, not actually doing stuff? Because here's a caution. If that categorizes you, this is not the way it should be. True Christian commitment perseveres. True Christian commitment continually is the kind of person that is interactive, that is engaged, that is requesting, that is acting. That's what he's telling us here. Ask, seek, and knock. These verses are telling us that we are looking at our Father for provision and counsel and direction and love. That's what we're looking at here. This is, we are pursuing the Father this is, this is, I'm going to show you this in just a second. We're pursuing God for the sake of God. All right? We're not pursuing God for the sake of things. Although we are getting things. He's telling us to ask for things. And, he used, and his little illustration there, in 9 um, through 11, he actually is going to say, uh, of which one of you, of his sons, will ask him for bread, will give him a stone. Now, don't forget that in Matthew 4, the temptation Turn these breads into stone. But anyway, um, which one of you ask his sons for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If my son came and asked me for bread, I wouldn't say, oh, Aiden, here you go, eat this rock. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, if he said, hey, can I have something to eat like a fish? I wouldn't say, oh, here's a snake. Why don't you chew on that for a little bit? I would never do that. And he says, if you who are, 
who are sinful, or a human sinful person who has deep love affections for your child, if you would never do that, if then, and this is the, if you remember um, last week at 526 and 528, we talked about the way that Jesus sometimes does uh, explanations. If this, then certainly this, if Jesus is going to uh, give the birds food, well, absolutely he's going to feed you. If he's going to clothe the fields with lilies, well, of course he's going to clothe you. That same kind of argument is what he's doing here. If you who then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, I would always give Aiden food. I would always give him um, not a stone or a snake, but what he would want. Um, if I would give him, usually my food, if, if I'm going to give him that, he says, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven, and sorry, in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So he's highlighting to you the, the extreme benevolent nature of the father. Benevolent means who loves to give good things. That we have a Father who loves to give us good things. Now, this is what's pretty amazing. Um, in Luke eleven thirteen, the the same you know we know Matthew, Mark, and Luke they're called the synoptic gospels. That just means sin meaning same optic eye, same eye. These three guys are kind of giving us uh, the same eye view of Jesus's life, and so there's lots of, lots of carryover, lots of um, similar texts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's a little bit different, um, but in Luke, there's the same kind of uh, text here where he's, he's running through this, and he's giving us these te- this exact same teaching, um, and in this exact same sentence, he uses the same, do you who are no who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things? But Luke doesn't say good things. In Luke eleven thirteen, he says give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. That's different than good things, right? Matthew's not wrong. Matthew's not wrong. He does, God does give us good things when we ask Him. But Luke says the Holy Spirit. And so, I don't think any of us should miss this. The pursuit of God relentlessly is not in order... For him to give us things so that we can worship things. The pursuit of God relentlessly is that he would give us the gift of himself. There is no greater gift that God can give us than himself. He is the gift. There's a book called God is the Gospel by John Piper. where He's saying the good news is God. Like the good news is that you're forgiven of sin, all this kind of stuff. But the greatest news is that he gives him himself. There is no greater reality in all of the world... If God would give us anything other, other than, anything other than himself, then that would mean that would be the greatest thing. So in order for him to give us the greatest thing, he has to give us the gift of himself, which just means if that's kind of lofty. Like, what in the world does that mean? That just means he's given us the gift of being in relationship with the most absolute, greatest reality, the greatest being in the world. He's given us the gift of being in relationship with him. And so... That's what we're talking about here when we say, ask, seek, and knock, that Jesus is pointing us to the gospel of the kingdom produces sons and daughters that pursue God relentlessly because we have started to, in this, in this life, get a glimpse of just how great it is to be in relationship with the infinite. The infinite is, is loving us with his infinite love, the, the way that a father we've never experienced. And we, 
are absolutely enamored by this love by which the Father has given to us in Christ that we cannot get enough. We are drunk on that love that we gotta have more. I gotta have more. I gotta have more. But here's the problem. We live in this fallen world where we get a glimpse and we passionately pursue Him and then something happens for a little bit where we kind of fall off because we live in a broken world where we're not... Something else catches our eye. Um, whether it's something shiny like we talk about or sin, whatever. Something catches our eye and we forget this unbelievable love that we had with the Father and then something happens, God's gracious, and we'll finally pursue Him again. And that's going to be how it might happen for the rest of this time where you're here until one day we're in heaven. Sin's gone and we'll, we'll really be in the most deep, passionate relationship with Him. And remember, because He's infinite, it'll never, ever, ever go away. There'll always be new mercies. There'll be always new loves that we'll experience because the finite can forever experience the infinite. But anyway, um, back to this. So here we're saying that we are supposed to receive, uh, ask, receive, and not. Ask, seek, and not. This is telling us that when we ask, we're supposed to, we're supposed to petition God for things. Seek means we're supposed to ask and petition, but we're also supposed to act. We're supposed to do things now. Seek means I'm not just asking. I'm not just sitting here passively asking for something and waiting for you to do it, but I'm also going to seek. I am going to move. Sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, is where God does something, but we also do something as well. God does everything else in regeneration, justification, glorification. But in sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, we ourselves are acting in, in conjunction with Him. And we know in Philippians 2.12, all along it was Him anyway. But that's just a side note. So here, what we want to ask is this. All right. Because, I mean, I think this is the key question of it all. Thought I believe you. That all sounds great. How do I do it? How do I do it? Because I look at my life, and my life isn't patterned after that. I, I do get excited, and I do get a glimpse of the great glory of Jesus and, and being able to be passionately involved in a love relationship with Him sometimes, and then something catches my, my eye, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm over here. But I want to be that because I know that. Um, let's return just for a second to the very first beatitude. The very first beatitude. This is Matthew 5, 3. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And if you remember when we, when we studied um, the Beatitudes, this, the one that is poor in spirit is the one that has realized just how sinful they are in front of a holy God. And because they recognize just how sinful they are, they are, they are broken because of their sin. They are so broken that they are poor in their spirit because they recognize that they are so much more sinful than they realized in, in, in the light of a holy God. And all they can do is say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you desperately. And when we have this kind of attitude, when we, we continually keep our minds in who we are before a holy God and that in His infinite love He has reconciled us to Himself even though we are completely broken in spirit, realizing how sinful we are. That's how. I mean, that's how. It's a, it's a continual thing that we're going to go through our entire lives when we want to pursue Him, we want to ask, we want to seek, we want to knock. And we know, as verse 9 through 11 tells us, if we do that, He's a good Father. So we return whenever we find ourselves straying. We, we return over to reminding ourselves that we're supposed to be poor in spirit. And as we're poor in spirit, God will reveal even more of Himself to us. We'll know that we're 
eager to pursue God because we are mere beggars before Him, needing Him. And the glory of it all is this. Here's the glory of it all. Is that He is pleased to give it to us. He is pleased to give Him Himself. Notice verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. And there's no trick behind that word in the Greek. That just literally just means everyone. So if you will ask, seek, and knock, everyone who does that receives. Everyone. There's not a person in this room that's out of the reach of that. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't... You think you are so far gone, but you're not. There's not something that you've done that keeps you away from this. Everyone who asks, seeks, and knocks will receive. Everyone. That is a great promise. That includes you in this room. That includes me. And every one of us should absolutely love this promise. Whether you are really far or whether you see yourself straying, the promise is that if you will pursue Him, then you will have Him. Every one of us should press in deeply to that promise. That is awesome. So, He loves to give us good things. Luke 11 says, The Holy Spirit, even more incredible, He gives us the gift of Himself. We should never overlook that. We should never overlook that. We should be absolutely astonished at that as we think about it. God has given me himself. He's given me himself. Now, here's the deal. Verses 7 through 11, as we look at it, um, it's not just stressing the Father's willingness to give, but it's stressing the Father's ability to give. He's willing, but he's also able Sometimes I'm willing to do things, but I'm just not able. I want to do it, but I just can't. I don't, I, I'm not able. This is not just stressing the willingness of God, but His absolute deep ability to. There are no resources that He will run out of. Namely, because He's infinite. So, the third, the third thing here is this. The gospel of the kingdom produces sons and daughters that pursue God Relentlessly. Now, verse 12, uh, we're only doing verses 1 through 11, but verse 12 serves as just a remarkable, we're going to really talk about it next week, but I want you to see this because verse 12 is the transition sentence from the body to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It says, and so whatever, and it's the golden rule, by the way. um, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. Knowing the grace of God working so powerfully in your heart, when you know this, you are now freed from the mastery of sin and freed from um, your love of self in your life. You're free from being stingy. You're free from not having a good prayer life. You're free from never fasting. You're free from loving money. You're free from anxiety. You're free from being a judgmental hypocrite. You're free from... um, not being able to pursue Christ relentlessly. You're free from all that. You're able to be a giver. You're able to be a faster for the things of God. You're able to spend um, 
more time in prayer than you thought you could. You're able to, to hold on to money very loosely because you want to see people enter the kingdom. Though you may struggle with anxiety sometimes, you're free from you, you're remembering God is sovereign and He's good. He's good. You're free from a hip, being a hypocrite. That's what verse 12 is telling us. He's, he's rounding it all up and He's telling us, you're free now to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The gospel of the kingdom, because Jesus is in you, you're not going to do these things on your own power. You never could do these things on your own, on your own power. Um, the way that we can live on this, out the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Boyce says, is by appropriating the new life of God, which we receive as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we learn to ask God for the right inclinations and the power we must have to pursue them. That's the way we live out the Sermon on the Mount. It's not by sheer willpower because you're going to white-knuckle it and now you're going to do it because you asked Jesus in your heart. Instead, it's because God has given you the new life and faith in Jesus Christ appropriately lives out itself because He's given you the Holy Spirit and you have Him living it out in you. That's how you live out the Sermon on the Mount. So what do you do now? What do you do now? The gospel is this, that faith in Christ because of His Son who died on the cross for us, all of our sin has been forgiven because of our faith in Him. And now, here's the deal. We talked about this at the Beatitudes. We talked about this whenever we talked about it. Um, Beatitudes. This is what it says. That blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. On and on. And what I said is this. I'm not going to tell you now as a Christian that you should be meek now. Come on now, Christian, start hungering, thirsting for righteousness. The gospel says, as a Christian, you are those things now. It's not, which one of these do I want to pick and live out? Which one do I need to start white-knuckling? I need to start being more merciful. The gospel is, you are those things. If you are in Christ, you may not live them out every day, but the truth is that you are those things now. The truth is that the Sermon on the Mount is true in your life. You can pursue Christ relentlessly you can not be a hypocrite that's what the gospel of the kingdom is telling us that's good news that jesus has purchased not only forgiveness but the ability to live out the christian life for us on the cross so as we go into our time now of reflection as we go into our time now of singing um, and worshiping through song um, i just want to invite you to think about your life think about whether you're a judgmental hypocrite and you have more critical things and more tearing down in your life than uplifting things to say that are gospel-centered, that would want to encourage people in their walk. Which one are you? Um, and then on the, on the third one, think about which kind of son or daughter you are. Someone who just kind of sits on the sidelines. Someone who never pursues Jesus. Someone who never asks. Someone who never acts. Someone who just kind of never wants to engage, or are you engaging, asking, seeking? You know. I mean, I don't have to like go through that with you. <laughs> we don't need to sit down and have a talk. You know your heart. You know where you are. And if you're, if you're not seeing these things, listen, the goal is not white-knuckle it. The goal is press into the gospel and realize that these things have been appropriated to you through the gospel, through Christ. And so ask for them. Seek them now. Lord, give these things to me. Give me more of the Spirit. And so as we go into this time of worship, maybe you need to sit and think. 
Maybe you just need to pray and say, Lord, I've heard your word and I want those things in my life. Please, God, help me. And then you stand and sing with us. Or maybe you just want to stand because you've been broken and the Lord has spoke to you. And you just want to stand and and worship and just thank him for the gospel and thank you that all of your righteousness is found in Jesus and never on your performance. Praise God is never found in our performance. Wherever the way the Lord is leading, I just ask that you would be obedient. We're going we're gonna to sing for a little while, so you have time to think. That's one of the things we really try to value here at Remedy, is that you have time to think, time to reflect, time to think about and worship and, and deal with what, whatever the Holy Spirit might be doing in your life, and, and you can worship with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you where we can come here and worship. Thank you where we can come hear your word. Lord, I pray for myself, God, that if there's anything that I've said that has been unhelpful, that has been incorrect, that was not of you, that you would just remove it from the minds of everyone here and the things that are your truth, the things that are from the Spirit, that, Lord, those things would press into my life and those here, and that you would use those things to draw us closer to Christ. Lord, keep us from being hypocrites. Put in us a deep passion to relentlessly pursue Jesus. And we'll give you the glory. We know that you're not only willing, Lord, but you are able. So God, be with us now as we worship you. Put deep affections in our heart for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.